Hartford on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener at WAGP.net or listening to us here through 88.7 FM, we welcome you. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Uh, folks call in live. The 843 South Carolina Exchange is simply 525-1859. 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL, at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. So we're happy to take your questions, maybe concerning some theological issue, maybe some challenge in your life or ministry or church or family, and by God's grace, we'll direct you towards his word. Well, with that said, Walt, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes in as a live dictation from Faye out of Gillisonville, South Carolina. She writes, I have a friend who goes to another church, and in her class, someone was commenting that they go to the quote-unquote club, and their excuse was that Jesus would hang out in those places. How should I help my friend to guide that person? Well, I've just turned to Ephesians 4. Um, That's a passage that comes to mind. I don't think this is a difficult question, or it shouldn't be for your friend. Uh, you know, nightclubs, bars, clubbing, I don't know if they still use that term or not. Uh, they, they exist for a couple of purposes. Number one, to, to get drunk, to get buzzed, to drink alcohol. And secondly, to meet members of the opposite sex, typically for living immorally. It's often singles or marrieds who are cheating on their spouses or have left their spouse and looking for for someone else. And so it's, it's an ungodly <clears throat> atmosphere. So, you know, the reason, the reasoning that your friend is using is really not sound. Would, would Jesus go to a place like that? And I would say absolutely not. I think of a time when Jesus actually came to the earth prior to his incarnation. Uh, it's a whole sermon in itself. And we offer at searchthescriptures.org. By the way, if you don't have that phone app, uh, that would be a great thing to download because if you want to study issues or uh, different realms of theology, we have uh, there the Institute of Biblical Studies along with thousands of sermons. By the way, if you don't follow me on YouTube, uh, go to YouTube and and type in Search the Scriptures. That would be a great help to us because the more people who follow us and subscribe— Actually, it logistically, it puts us out there, and more people, more unchurched, unsaved people will hear God's Word. With that said, in the book of Genesis, the Lord comes down to Abraham, if you remember, with two angels. So there's a, 
one angel who's called the Lord. He's called Yahweh. He's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord. Now, Moses, of course, had not been given that name yet until uh, after, you know, long after Abraham's dead, about 600 years later, in around 1400 BC, the Lord appears to him. But the covenant name for God, Moses, who writes the first five books, uses it all the way through Scripture. And so one of the angels is called Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord. The word malek is a word that means messenger. So some would not even like the translation angel. You might say the messenger of the Lord, because this is no typical angel. But the Lord did appear at times as a pre-incarnate being, as an angel uh, coming as a man. And on that occasion, when he came down and dialogued with Abraham, you know, over the whole issue of the destruction of Sodom, uh, he when when he finally decides to destroy Sodom, uh, sadly he does, and he sends down two angels of judgment. But the Lord Himself doesn't come down. Uh, it's just too wicked a place for even the presence of the angel of the Lord. And so, certainly, the Lord had a burden for reaching, say, prostitutes, harlots, tax collectors, people who were the undesirables. He didn't go uh, to the place where prostitutes would hang around and solicit, you know, male company, but he invited them to dinner in various places where they could come and hear about the good news. And so, we can take a verse of Scripture and really distort its meaning, but the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And really, simply speaking, you know, nightclubs, they're worldly. They're part of Satan's realm. He's the God of this world who is energizing the sons of disobedience. So I turn to Ephesians 4, and this would be the passage I might share with your friends. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer uh, you no longer, <clears throat> excuse me, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Now, the word Gentile here is a synonym for a pagan. And of course, the raw pagans of the first century were, for the most part, Gentiles. That's not to say a Jewish person couldn't be, but that would be the exception. And so the word Gentile can refer ethnically to a non-Jew but very often it's synonymous with a pagan, and that's how Paul's using it here. And so these Gentiles, he describes them as being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus— that in reference to your former manner of life, some of you were saved out of these barroom, clubbing, nightclub backgrounds, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceits, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of Christ, having been created in righteousness and holiness and the truth. So no, Jesus wouldn't go to such a place, and Paul describes... Uh, people who've been excluded from the life of God is given over to sensuality. In fact, he says here in verse 2, lay aside your old self which is being corrupted in the lust of deceits. God says that we, we give ourselves over to our sin nature, 
And when we do that, we're being deceived by our own desires. And Satan is the master of deceit. And so these places are not for a believer for several reasons. One, God says, make no provision for the flesh. That is the sin nature in regards to its lusts, its evil desires. And so you're tempting the devil to tempt you. You go into a place that's filled with uh, drunkenness. And again, evil men have always known one way to seduce a woman is to make her high on alcohol. That's what Habakkuk says. Woe to you who gives his neighbor to drink to make that person drunk so you can see their nakedness. And so, look, people are in the bar room to get high, to get buzzed, to, to have illicit uh, relationships. The scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5, and we cover this, these verses in our New Christians class, uh, and it says they're abstained from every appearance of evil. Some things are not evil, but they have the appearance of evil. And so think your way through this. You go into a nightclub, and someone may say, oh, I know that guy over there. He claims to be a Christian. And look, he's in this place with the rest of us. He's nothing but a hypocrite. And so some things, even if you went in, quote, unquote, for, you know, just evangelize, it potentially has the appearance of evil. My guess is your friend drinks, which is another issue in and of itself. You might want to go to the Search the Scriptures website. I have two articles there, one by Dr. Norman Geisler, Uh, called Wine Drinking in the New Testament, and another with the same title by Robert Stein. He wrote an article in Christianity Today in the early 1970s, uh, again, dealing with wine drinking in the New Testament. And what is clear is that drunkenness is sin, and the use of strong drink is sin. And by strong drink, we're not referring to the distilled alcohols. Um, Most would say they come a thousand years after the completion of the New Testament. Uh, I'll give maybe some leeway and say 600 years, but in either case, they weren't around when the Bible was being written. And so when you see the term strong drink, you have to interpret it in its biblical culture, and it's basically fermented wine or beer. And God says, don't use it. Of course, you can give it to a dying, despairing man. So it has the appearance of evil. God says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. I, I think it's pretty tough to say that that is a place that really glorifies God, a place that's given over to sensuality and drunkenness. Uh, In addition, you want to be an example to other believers. The scripture says, by your model, you don't want to do anything, Romans 14. And again, we cover this in our new Christians class, the discovery class, uh, that would cause another brother to stumble. And so someone might say, well, she's a strong believer, and she goes to that place for the purpose of evangelism. I guess I can go there as well. And even if she went there and didn't have the first drink, uh, she is she has created a, a model that's compromised because people will read into it, and a younger Christian might follow their example and stumble because of it. The Scripture says we're to let our sh- light shine in such a way that men might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so let me just say that uh, I think your friend is either more likely Christianized and not born again and just looking for excuses because this is typically the behavior of the day that we live in. All these people who go around saying, well, I've received Christ, I walked the aisle, the preacher baptized me, I'm born again, but their life is not fundamentally changed. 
So at worst, I suppose she's Christianized and not born again. At the very best, she's been saved, but she's remained a baby in Christ. And so I would direct her, if the latter is true, to my first two messages in the basic discipleship course that you can find at Search the Scriptures. It's our discovery class, and it's uh, 10 sessions to cover two handouts. And I think uh, this would answer her question. But this is not a place for believers to go, and uh, there's no way around it. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. We're going to go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Leslie from Boston, Massachusetts. Good morning, Leslie. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Hi, Pastor Carl. It's Leslie from Boston. Hey, Leslie. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for your diligence and your commitment, uh, everything you do for the Lord. We really appreciate it. Um, I just wanted to know if you could recommend some books on the church history. Okay, yeah, so um, it's a it's a good question. We're Sorry, we're getting a little feedback there. Um, and let me just say, if anyone calls in, make sure your radio is is off and you're just using your phone line directly. And ideally, if you um, don't speak through your speaker phone, that also helps. But, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of books. One is by Erdman's, and it's called The History of Christianity. Um, it has since gone out of print. But in my judgment, it's still probably the single best one volume uh, that is available uh, to the person. And if you go to uh, half.com and you type in the history of Christianity and the publisher was Erdman's, uh, it will bring it up. It's called Handbook of the History of Christianity. And if you do so, you'll find it uh, there for probably... Ten dollars or less plus shipping, um, it will probably come back in print, and if it does, it will be a hundred dollars. But since it's a classic and it comes in and out of print, uh, it will be virtually nothing to buy. So that's what I would recommend: Erd- Erdman's Handbook of the History of Christianity, and uh, it's excellent and it will give you all the major broad scopes. Now I have some. Uh, you know, six and seven volume works on the history of Christianity. But honestly, this is about as good as you can get. I'd say it's even better than one seven volume series that I have. And what's good is the footnotes are superb so that if there was a subject that ah, I'd like to chase this down a little bit, there's an excellent bibliography and great notations so you can buy a particular book on maybe a particular subject. So um, it's a good treatment, and it's uh, done by born-again Christians, and it's um, done through the lens of Scripture uh, without prejudice or bias that you will typically find in secular works that uh, have been done by people who don't know the Lord. Great question. You know, we're broadcasting in Boston, and we are on a station there. Uh, Someone actually moved here. And they lived uh, outside of uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, where we broadcast. And they would drive every day uh, listening to the Boston station. And then they realized there was one right there in Worcester. Anyway, nonetheless, that individual got saved and ended up moving here and joining our church. He was single and flexible at that point in his life and able to do that. But we're on in Worcester and in Boston 
and uh, quite a quite a listenership there. So be in prayer for that, uh, that more and more people would find Christ as Lord. Uh, let's go ahead to the next question, Walter. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Latronda out of Guyton, Georgia. She writes, I was taught as a child that people who commit suicide don't go to heaven. Over the years, we hear about celebrities committing suicide, and the response of many commentators is almost always rest in peace or that they are in a better place. What are your thoughts on this, biblically speaking? Well, it's a great question, and it comes up from time to time. Uh, Let me just say first that it is possible for a Christian to commit suicide. It's very sad when it happens. Um, added to the tragedy is that many people will attend the funeral thinking that person is automatically in hell because they've committed suicide. I've done approximately 500 funeral sermons, messages, officiated in one capacity or another in the last 40 years, and I've done, the uh, sadly, the suicide of four people. Um, and And... Three of them were definitely believers. I'm not sure on one of them. Now, let me just say parenthetically, I would say as a general rule, those who commit suicide are lost people. But it is possible for a Christian to commit suicide, but the false teaching that they go to hell is people will appeal to uh, Matthew's account. We know in Matthew 27 that Judas hung himself, And in describing Judas in the prior chapter, Jesus said it would have been better for Judas never to have been born. And he makes it very clear that Judas goes to hell. But understand, Judas does not go to hell because he commits suicide. He expedited his his trip to hell. He got there sooner than he should have gone. But he went to hell, and, and he went there because he was lost. And we know that from at least two passages. And so what comes to my mind first is the Bread of Life sermon that follows the Bread of Life discourse. The Bread of Life discourse is one of those miracles that is found in all four Gospels. Uh, but the sermon that comes with it is found uniquely in John's Gospel. And, of course, uh, Jesus makes it very clear uh, let me start reading here in verse John six sixty six 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 six. All right. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew, and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, "You don't want to go away, also, do you?" Simon Peter answered, "Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God." Jesus said to him, "Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So he uses this expression to describe an unbeliever. He he didn't literally mean he was the devil, but that he was of the evil one. That is, he was still in the kingdom of darkness. And of course, the Lord continued to reach out to him you know, in the upper room in John chapter 13, if you remember, uh, Jesus washed feet, not simply to teach the concept of servanthood, but also to show that there's a need for cleansing, spiritual cleansing. And if you remember, he came to Peter and 
Peter said, Lord, you, you can't wash my feet. This is embarrassing. You, you know, the Lord of glory, you're going to wash my feet and never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said, look, if, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Uh, you have no participation, no fellowship with me. Well, Lord, if that's the case, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. And he says, no, he was bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So he is affirming that Peter is saved. He's been bathed. He's had salvation's wash, so to speak. If we can use that imagery that Christ is using, we might say once saved, always saved, or once bathed, always bathed. But he says, not all of you, for he knew the one who is betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So Judas goes to hell not because he commits suicide, but because he's lost. If someone is truly saved, the scripture is clear. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And, you know, occasionally when I read this passage of scripture, I'll say to someone, especially to those naysayers who say we can lose our salvation, and I'll ask them, look, if you can show me something that can separate me from the love of Christ, I'll give you a thousand dollars. And He says here, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So not even a created thing. Look, I'm created. I can't even separate myself from the eternal life that God has given me. So if an unsaved person again commits suicide, All he has done is expedited his journey to hell. He goes to hell not for committing suicide. He just goes there sooner, and he's lost all opportunity to be saved. Now, let me say parenthetically, when a Christian commits suicide, and again, it's very rare, it's the exception to the rule. But if a Christian truly commits suicide, they have left a terrible witness to those who are left behind. You know, you say Jesus is the answer. The thief comes only to kill and destroy and to steal. And I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Well, some abundant life, it didn't work out for this fellow. And so you give the unbelieving world an opportunity to blaspheme the name of God, to discredit the Christian faith that we say we follow. And that's sad. Secondly, it is a heartbreaking thing for the loved ones who are left behind. It's a very selfish act. It's the extreme act of selfishness. And when you are, uh, you've committed suicide, you've left behind heartbroken people who some of them seemingly never get over with it. I know it as a pastor. I've had to deal with these people and it's just heartbreaking to them, you know, and very often they're thinking, well, what if I had done this? And and they begin to, like, take responsibility. Look, you can't take responsibility for someone's suicide any more than you can take responsibility for someone's adultery. Uh, look, they put the gun in their hand. They put the rope around their neck. Whatever, however they chose to take their lives, they are responsible and accountable for God. So there's implications in terms of their testimony, in terms of their loved ones, and there's implications in terms of their eternal reward. Their reward is lessened because you see in Psalm 139, the days that were written even before there was yet one were ordained by God. And so if God had ordained for that person to live to 70, uh, 
and they die at 40 because of suicide, then they lost 30 years of opportunity in which to serve the Lord. And let me also say, just while I'm here, one of those four suicides, actually it was five as I'm sitting here. One of those five suicides was a young man. He was 16 years old, and he had a vibrant Christian life. And he and his mother came to our church. They weren't even members. They had moved here from another state. Uh, Her husband had left her. Uh, It was devastating for the child that dad had abandoned the mother for another woman. And so what did she do? She brought him to a doctor. He put their son who again had a vibrant witness, had been on mission trips, sharing his faith, loved Christ, daily quiet times, put him on this medication. You read some of these medications, you hear of some of these antidepressants, and there's always these warnings of side effects. And one of them is this medication may lead to suicidal thoughts. Well, sadly, that happened to this young man. And as he was waiting at the bus stop out on... Uh, Highway 170, as a cement mixer truck was coming, he stepped right in front of the truck and allowed the truck to take his life. And so she had no place to turn, but to me, didn't have a church home yet, and I sadly had to preach his funeral. But the young man knew the Lord. And so, look, when you're dealing with antidepressants too, that can be the genesis of some suicidal behavior. Anyway, this is a question that comes up from time to time, and I always add this caveat. If you're out there thinking, well, life is better, you know, um, I'm just going to check out of here and head to heaven, that's a deceptive lie from the evil one. Don't you believe it for a skinny moment? And people who commit suicide typically think there's no hope for things to get better, that things are just so bad, things can never get better. And that, again, is a lie from the evil one. Things can always get better, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if you are having these kinds of thoughts, you need to get immediate help. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes in as a live dictation from Alberto out of Savannah, Georgia. He writes, in John 2012, there were two angels in the Lord Jesus' tomb. Some preachers say that this represents the Ark of the Covenant. Also, that it is related to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, where the angel said, Holy, holy, holy. What are your thoughts? Well, um, since there was an angel at each side of the place where Jesus was laying, and I personally believe that the garden tomb is the best example of certainly a first century tomb, I can tell you definitively absolutely, that the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is not the place where Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Uh, And when I go to Jerusalem and we go to the Garden Tomb, I give 15 reasons why that place is not possible, why that place does not fit the biblical records of the biblical accounts. Helena, the mother of um, one of the early emperors, Constantine, had a liver quiver experience, and she decided that was the place. Well, it certainly was not. With that said, uh, if indeed the tomb, the garden tomb, and I have every reason to believe that it is because it fits all the parameters, certainly it is a place in close proximity to where Jesus died, and so the place of the skull 
is about 25 yards from where the garden tomb is. It's just a short throw. And, uh, in, in of course, it's outside the city gate where a crucified victim would be. Uh, it's owned by a rich man. It, it fits all the parameters is what I'm saying. And so when you see that, that tomb, whether it's the actual one or not, it doesn't change the fact that there was an angel on each side. And so some might reason, well, that's a picture of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant where you had a holy angel on each side shielding um, God's holiness from the elements that were represented below that pictured man's sin. There were three objects in the Ark of the Covenant, a jar of manna, which the people rejected. There was the Ten Commandments, actually the second set, because the people through their idolatry and immorality rejected the first set. And Moses destroyed them, and God wrote a second pair. And so it becomes a symbol of the people's, you know, rebelliousness towards God. And then there was the budded rod of Aaron, which, again, was a representation of how God had provided leadership. So they rejected God's leadership, they rejected God's moral provision, and they rejected God's physical provision. And so these became symbols of sin for the nation. And once a year on the day of atonement in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, they would go in, they, meaning the high priests, would once a year go in. Uh, Tradition says they tied a rope around his leg in case he died in there. Uh, That's not, of course, recorded in Scripture. Um, But no one dared to go in, and so you would supposedly drag him out. In either case, he went in and he put blood on top of the um, mercy seat. It's literally the propitiatory seat where God is propitiated, where his wrath is satisfied. And it pictured that when God looked down, um, he no longer saw those objects that represented Israel's sin and rebellion, but the blood. And of course, it was a foreshadowing of what Messiah himself would do. Now, to take that and then to say, well, these two angels, you know, represent the cherubim and the place where Jesus was laid uh, as the top of the mercy seat, and to be dogmatic on that, well, it's just not true. And we may get to heaven and God would say, well, that's the imagery I was trying to communicate. But I would be guilty of eisegesis to say that it that it does absolutely represent the Ark of the Covenant, and I could go into some other reasons for that. Uh, but the text does not say that. And so when you read into the text and make up a sermon over something that's not said, there's no end to where you can end up uh, going with such kinds of implications. We don't want to read into the text. That's eisegesis. We want to exegete. We want to read out what God has plainly said, and he has said no such thing, that the tomb was a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And really, even then, it wouldn't picture the Ark of the Covenant. The most it would picture would be the top of the Ark, and so on. So it's a fair question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. If you have a question on this morning's Bible line, Our next question comes from Alan out of Rinkin, Georgia, and he writes, Dr. Brogy, we recently had a member of our church preach a sermon in our pastor's absence. He preached from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, explaining that this passage passage teaches that God no longer speaks directly to us, but only speaks to us through his word. 
I have found that the majority of our uh, staff believes that believes this as well. I do not agree, but I wanted your opinion. Well, um, this brother from Rinkin, Georgia, sounds like he has some really good pastoral staff. Let me read to you the first few verses. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, and these last days he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so as you read Hebrews 1, and you let Scripture interpret Scripture, Again, I suppose if we want to be technical here, Alan, and I believe it sounds to me like these faithful pastors and this uh, particular member who preached in in lieu of the pastor's presence that day, um, it sounds to me like they're trying to be faithful to the Word of God. You see, in the early church, before the Bible was written, God did indeed give direct revelation. You had people who spoke scripture, so to speak. Uh, that was the prophetic side of the gift of prophecy. You had someone who, say, spoke in a tongue, and then someone interpreted the tongue, a real language, glossolalia, not the gibberish and ecstatic utterances that are being presented in today as the gift of tongues. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, it was a miracle what took place, and so God spoke. Now, we know Satan can counterfeit, and that's why the Scripture affirmed that everything should be done with the confirmation of two or three witnesses, and that a prophet's spirit was subject to the spirit of other prophets, and and so on, because the evil one is indeed a deceiver. And revelation that God would give would not counter what he had already revealed. But understand, for nearly a decade, they couldn't turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or Paul's letter to the Ephesians, or John, who wrote the Revelation, the last book to be written in the New Testament canon. So they relied on, at times, direct revelation, or the apostles' teachings, or when books were being written, they were delivered to various churches and copied by faithful scribes, and people could hear the literal Word of God. There came a point when the canon of Scripture was completed. And it is interesting, with Revelation being the very last book of the Bible to be written, and no one debates that, I should say, but the fact that it is the last book to be written, uh, God warns, he says, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to, uh, to take the water of life without cost, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. You say, well, that just applies to the book of Revelation. Well, let me assume your argument is true, to add or subtract anything today is to violate what the last book of the Bible says. It would be either to add to Revelation or to take away from Revelation. So the canon of Scripture is closed, and what is so interesting is church history records through the early church fathers that when the canon of Scripture was finished, the gift of prophecy in terms of new revelation stopped. The gift of tongues stopped. It just ceased. And think your way through this. 
let's just say the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues or even the gift of prophecy was still available today. And suppose someone comes and they give a word of prophecy or they give a tongue and someone supposedly interprets it. Again, none of these things are happening, but just for the sake of argument, how would you know it's true? Well, you'd have to go to the canon of Scripture, to the 66 books of the Bible. The word canon is from a Latin word. It means a measuring stick. And so God's measuring stick, God's way in which we evaluate truth, is according to the canon of Scripture. It's our plumb line. So you'd have to go to Scripture to see, oh, is this consistent? Is this something God has already said? Or does this add to it? Or does this subtract to it? Well, let's just say it was identical. Well, even if it were identical... um, why not just go to the text of Scripture? Why be some showboat to say, well, look how spiritual I am and God's speaking through me? That's just sheer arrogance. It's just utter pride that is being executed in these churches by these people who think they're big shots spiritually. Now, the canon of Scripture is closed, and God is not giving text messages from heaven like um, Jesus calling. And that book is heretical, absolutely heretical. I wrote an evaluation on the introduction to it, and it was downloaded thousands of times through other websites that people picked up on it. And I noticed it was a short throw where they then removed the introduction from the book. But the original introduction, when someone gave me a copy thinking they were blessing me with it, I thought when I just read the introduction, I didn't have to read any further. This is utter heresy. This woman who is getting direct revelation from God, no different than Beth Moore, and look how south she went. You know, she spoke in Duke Chapel a couple months ago. That's, you know, the pit of heresy and apostasy. But, oh, she's willing to speak in Duke Chapel when the Scripture says you're to separate from those who are apostates, from those who teach false doctrine to those who don't ascribe to the teaching of Scripture. So this is the danger of it. So actually, um, your lay laymen who preach and your pastors are right, and if you think they're wrong, you're actually the one who's wrong, but I appreciate your asking me with an open heart. You might want to take um, this gentleman from Rinkin, Georgia, my course on spiritual gifts. You can get it at Search the Scriptures. Dot org, type in the search bar, Spiritual Gifts Course, and take the, uh, le- at least read, I think it's section six, maybe it's section seven on the sign gifts, and work through that handout. I think that would be a real eye-opener to you. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, our next question comes from Mark out of Bluffton, South Carolina. He writes, if God knew man would fail, why did he continue down that path? Why did man continue down that path, or why did God? I'm assuming you're saying, why did God create man, knowing that man would sin? Because God created man in his own image, and part of being made in the image of God is that we are free moral agents. And so to be a free moral agent, you have to have a free will. You have to have the ability to choose And so God gave man a choice from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And man chose to eat from the tree. He died that day spiritually, began to age physically, and if the problem's not fixed, he will die eternally. 
And so if God didn't know this, God would not be God. And so God made man so that man could enjoy the Lord. And thank God he made us knowing that we would even rebel and sin because I know the Lord today uh, because of my Redeemer who died and now lives and has provided new life, the life that God originally wanted Adam to know that he knew for a short throw as he walked with God, God in the cool of the garden. And so we can know the Lord and that's what God created us for. That's actually the definition of eternal life. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So I'm thankful to the Lord that in his omniscience, knowing that man would rebel, and by the way, not just Adam, uh, this brother from Kingsport, Kingsport, what is it? Uh, Mark. Oh, no, this this is one from uh, Bluffton, I can see. Yes, Pascal. Uh, he, 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 you were there too, Mark. Take it by faith. You were in the loins of Adam, and that's why Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 12, when Adam sinned, Mark from Bluffton sinned. All right, Carl from Beaufort sinned. We all sinned in and with Adam. Now, are you gl- glad that God made you? Uh, well, if you don't know the Lord, you might not be glad. But if you know the Lord and you have new life, you're thrilled that God made you, even knowing that Mark from Bluffton would sin in and with Adam and that God provided a way of escape so that Mark from Bluffton could be redeemed and I could be redeemed and anyone in this whole planet who's ever lived could be redeemed through faith in the Messiah and his finished work. Good question. Let's go to the next. Now, the next one I can see there on your screen is from Kingsport, Tennessee. What's his question? Uh, his It's a Butch, Pastor Carl, from Kingsport, Tennessee, and he writes, Pastor Carl, do you have any sermons that argue against praetorism? Preterism. Yes, I do. So you might want to, let me define some terms. What is preterism? It's from a Latin term that simply means past. And so there are folks who take maybe uh, most notably someone like R.C. Sproul. Um, he took the book of Revelation and apart from the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, he saw chapters 4 through 18 as already being fulfilled. And so in my opening sermon on the book of Revelation, I go through a different approaches people have taken in interpreting Revelation. Some allegorize it. They say, well, this is not literal stuff. Well, maybe the second coming is, they'll say. But this is not literal. I mean, there's not actually going to be a hundred pound you know, ice bomb from heaven, is there? Yes, there is. Um, is God really going to, like, destroy the wildlife uh, with uh, in fish life across the planet? Yes, he is. Is God going to literally someday melt the planet with fire and create a new heavens and a new earth? Oh, yes, he is. But preterism, with the exception of the second coming, uh, takes the book of Revelation 4 through 18 as history. It's all historical. Avadi Bakum, another popular pastor, takes that view. He's just wrong. I like Vadi, um, but he's wrong. He's abused the scripture. He has taken a different approach to interpreting the prophetic portions of scripture than what you find modeled in scripture. I was just speaking to someone recently, and I said, well, in your realm of theology, there's just one big event The Lord's going to sweep us off the earth and take us into heaven. He's got one big judgment when at the great white throne judgment, the only people present are lost. Uh, And, you know, and they 
they just have one big event and all these promises to the people of Israel and, you know, it's all done. And so rooted in this is a form of anti-Semitism. If these people are not themselves anti-Semites, they've created a system of theology that feeds anti-Semitism. I wouldn't say that R.C. Sproul is an anti-Semite or was, he's in heaven now, but he presented a system of truth that fed anti-Semitism, as did Martin Luther, as did John Calvin. And of course, they said some wicked things, wicked things that they had to give an account for when they met the Lord. I'm not saying they were lost, but they said some awful, wicked things. And so just because someone is a good preacher and maybe even a good theologian, you know, look, R.C. was an infant baptizer. People say, oh, that's a secondary issue. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. I don't want to get to heaven after 50 years of baptizing infants, and I've never baptized one, but if that were my theological persuasion, and God to say, you know, Carl, it was like so plain. How could I have not made it clear? Believe and then be baptized. How could I have not made it clear? What prevents me from being baptized? You first have to believe, Acts 8. How could I have made it any clear? These Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit just like us. How can we refuse baptism? Regeneration, salvation, then baptism. That's the Great Commission, Carl. Make disciples. It doesn't say do discipleship. That's a misread of the text. Remember, the Great Commission is given in five times. He is saying make converts. That's the gist of it. It's not do discipleship. Now, the do discipleship side would be in teaching them all that I taught you to observe. Make converts, baptizing, teaching. That's the pattern all the way through the Acts. Carl, for 50 years, you left out a major portion of the Great Commission. In fact, you, through your infant baptizing, created a scenario that gave young people no opportunity to do some personal evaluation and to confess me publicly before men. So preterism. Preterism has put the church to sleep. And so I said to this brother, how were the prophecies in Zechariah for the first coming fulfilled? Look, uh, Jesus was uh, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Just think of the prophecies in the last week. He comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's Zechariah. God prophesies that. He's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's Zechariah. Judas did that. He is um, going to be struck as a shepherd, and the, the apostles will scatter. That's Zechariah. God predicts it. He'll be pierced through for our iniquities. John quotes the Jews seeing him pierced through that day as a fulfillment of Zechariah. How were those prophecies fulfilled literally? So when you get to the next chapter and he says his feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives, how's that going to be fulfilled? Literally. He's going to split it in two. You better believe it. All the nations of the world, Zechariah 12 and again in 14, are going to oppose Israel? Yes. So preterism is a false system of theology. It has put the church to sleep. Because listen, this is important. At the end of time, God promises to gather the Jews. And so you couldn't find Israel on a map for 18 centuries. Moses predicted their scattering and their regathering never happened during the time of the Old Testament. 
Jesus pinpoints the time when it is going to happen as he too projects their scattering that had never happened to the ends of the earth. Oh, they were scattered once to Assyria and then some time later to Babylon, but never to all the nations of the world. So what Moses wrote never happened. Jesus tells us when it's going to happen. It's going to happen beginning with the destruction of Jerusalem, and it did. But then he goes on in the next chapter, and he assumes they're back in the land. What do they do with Matthew 24 and 25? They preterize it. Matthew 24 especially, it's all in the past. That's not going to happen in the future. And so these earthquakes and the abomination of desolation, certainly there's an Old Testament type of that. But what Jesus is describing is unparalleled in human history. He said that these judgments will be so severe that unless God had cut the time short, no flesh would have survived. R.C. Sproul was wrong in the way he interpreted this chapter of Scripture. He helped put the church to sleep apart from some other error that he propagated. He helped to put the church to sleep. So Israel's back in the land. The nations of the world, and certainly this has been accelerated since October 7th, are going against the Jewish people. This is prophesied. We're living in the final chapter of human history. How many years do we have left? I don't know. It doesn't change what I do. I said last week on Stand in the Gap Radio, a program I'm on once a month, sometimes twice, um, to, that, that, that deals with Israel and prophecy. And I said, suppose for the sake of argument, I knew 30 years to the day we had until Jesus came. Would I quit my job today? Of course not. Would I stop this, this expression of payment or this expression? Of, of course not. I'd keep occupying until he came. So we don't quit our jobs like some of the Thessalonians did. We occupy until Jesus comes. You live like he might not come for a thousand years. You live like he might come tomorrow. But we do know we're in the final time frame of human history. And when you add up the days of Noah, the days of Lot, growing apostasy, the hatred of Jerusalem, look, God knows it's near and we need to be alert. And the preterist view is putting the church to sleep. So this brother from Tennessee Listen to my first message in the Revelation series. I have 70-plus hours of preaching on the book of Revelation. By the way, if you don't have the Search the Scriptures app, download it. Just go to the App Store. It's kind of like a blue triangle. Uh, download it. And also, if you don't follow us on YouTube, uh, even today, even before the hour is over, go to YouTube, type in Search the Scriptures, subscribe you'll get a lot of really helpful shorts and some additions that are coming. You can also follow me at Carl Brigu or search the scriptures on X, and you'll get some personal stuff you won't find anywhere else. That will help us. Again, my, my goal is to get God's Word out there, to, to counter some of this error like preterism that this brother from Tennessee has called in about. Let's go to the next one. All right. I believe we have time for one more quick question, Pastor Carl. It comes from Michael out of Hardyville, South Carolina. He says, what are your thoughts on the Apocrypha books, and are they profitable to read? Thank you. Well, I say read them with great caution if you read them at all. What are my thoughts on them? Well, number one, they're not inspired by God. They don't meet any of the tests for canonicity. So when we speak of the Apocryphal books, we're speaking of those books that are written between the last prophet, Malachi, and the coming of the Lord Jesus and those whom he commissions to begin the writing of the New Testament. So there's 400 years, quote-unquote, of silence. 
And so there were some historical books that were penned during that time of Jewish history. Are they helpful? Yes, they can be. For instance, Daniel 11 predicts some things that will happen during that 400-year period, and they came true. And not only does Daniel write about it, history records it, not only secular history, but Jewish history. But when you come to the New Testament, the New Testament writers never quote the apocryphal books. And again, apocrypha and apocryphal, they're two different words. Sometimes the revelation is called the apocrypha, the revelation, the unveiling. But the apocryphal books are those books written between the two um, two points, the Old and New Testament books. And then, so that's why the Roman Catholics have some additional books, and they build false doctrine out of the apocryphal books, uh, like the doctrine of purgatory, like praying for the dead. Uh, so that's, that's not a good thing. But there were certain tests that showed us that the Bible was inspired by God. It had to have been written by a prophet or a man of God, as, as Peter affirms in 2 Peter's Hebrews 1, as I already read this morning, or Moses said in Deuteronomy 18. Uh, certainly, if the man was a prophet of God, he would be confirmed. Um, he would be confirmed by an act of God, either a miracle or a short-term prophecy that had been written and fulfilled. And certainly anything he wrote would not contradict previous revelations. So when you come into the New Testament, the Lord Jesus, the apostles, never quote the Apocrypha not once, not even in the book of Jude, as some have falsely concluded, not once. They only quote the 37 books of the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament. So uh, this is important. If you wanted to study this in more detail, you might want to go to uh, search the scriptures and download the course that I offer. I say there are different numbers of books in the Old Testament uh, because the Jewish Bible has the same Bible, but some books they combine together like First and Second Chronicles is one book in their Bible. First and Second Kings is one book. But lay that aside, they have the same material that we have, and there's a reason why even the Jewish people to this day do not believe the inner testament books are inspired by God. Well, that's all the time we have for today. By the way, if you listen to Wretched Radio, Todd Friel, he'll be coming to Community Bible Church. You can come join us at the 11 o'clock service on February the 11th. Todd Friel will be with us, and you don't want to miss that. He's a great man of God, and he'll be opening the scriptures to us on that uh, Sunday morning, and I'm very, very excited about it. Our members have an opportunity, members only, to come to the Valentine's Banquet uh, two days before that on the 9th. And if you haven't registered yet, you have to bring someone who's unchurched or lost or in an apostate denomination to participate. I want to encourage you to get on your knees and ask God to give you those people. Have a great day as you walk with Christ.